So let's turn together, if you don't mind, to Romans chapter 15. As I've been saying to you the past couple of weeks, we're nearing the end now. We've been in Romans for quite a while. I haven't counted recently, but I think we've had 110 or something like that sermons so far in this book. So we've taken our time. We've tried to, to squeeze it out like a sponge and get every drop. We've not gotten everything. If you have been reading God's Word for a long time, you, you never do. Every time you come back to a book, you're, you're, you're faced with new realities. And even if you've seen certain truths before, as you grow and experience life, you, you see truths in new ways because they apply to you in new ways. And so I hope that Romans, in a way, will become dear to you, that it will be used by the Spirit to settle down into your heart through the years. I find that this is the letter that I turn to very often, sometimes first, as I make my way through life. And so I hope that the truths of Paul's letter here are sinking in and will stick with you for a long time. We've given you the outline of the book many times, but it might be good for us to do that again today. Paul opens up his letter in chapter 1 with some introductory thoughts, and then in chapters 2 and 3, he goes to great lengths to talk about the sinfulness of mankind. So introduction, first part of chapter 1, then second part of chapter 1 through the beginning of chapter 3, he makes it very clear that humanity is in a desperate state, that they are full of sin, and that left to themselves, they will not pursue God. But in chapter 3, about halfway through, there's a, there's a big transition, and Paul makes it very clear that God has intervened, that He has made it possible to once again be close to God, to be rescued, to have a right relationship with Him. In fact, he uses lots of legal language through that part of the book, where he talks about the fact that we can be justified, we can be declared not guilty. And then in chapters 4 through 8, he really unpacks that and shows us what it looks like to trust in the gospel and how it is, in so many ways, the center of our hope. And in chapters 9 through 11, he teases out some of the implications of that, and especially in chapters 12 through 16, where we find ourselves now, he really gives a lot of applicational thoughts which follow on the, on the heels of all that he has said about the gospel. So very simply, humanity is, is desperately sinful, but there is hope because Jesus Christ has come and given us His grace. Because of this, there are certain ways that we should be living. We shouldn't be the same as we used to be. And as Paul often does, he roots his commands, the call to holy living, and what Christ has already done for us. So Christ's work on our behalf, we would call this the gospel, that Jesus Christ was crucified, buried, and resurrected, has given his life for us to take away our sin and to give us his righteousness. That's the gospel. This is the very foundation for all of our hope, and in fact, it must inform all that we do. And so, we have been taking our time over the past several weeks working through the Romans 14, the early part of Romans 15 section, talking about this issue of Christian liberty. What happens whenever you encounter people that are different than you, that have different viewpoints than you, especially as they regard religious kinds of worship? And Paul has said that Essentially, inevitably, you're going to be around people like this. And we really took time through that section to say that when it comes down to it, in life you're going to be constantly surrounded by people that are different than you. And rather than longing for this homogenized society or homogenized even church culture where everybody's just like you, when you long for that because whenever people are like you and they surround you, that in a way affirms you. You know, if, if you do what I do, then that makes me feel better about me. 
But when you're confronted by somebody who has different viewpoints than you, different doctrinal stances than you on some of the secondary and third level issues, then that can really, really get under your skin. Just like you get under their skin. And I think that Paul knew that this church needed this kind of instruction. They needed this exhortation because they were filled with all kinds of people that were, in many ways, sometimes duking it out. Maybe not literally, but metaphorically at the very least. So Paul is very concerned that this church be unified in in faith and in practice. So it matters what we believe and it matters what we do. These are not small things. These These are very big things. And so we should be concerned about these matters. So what we believe and what we do matters. So we are to be a community of grace, we will find now as we move into this verse for today. We're going to take our time and really park here on this one verse because I think it's really, really important. Romans chapter 15, verse 14, leads us to the conclusion that there is good in us, but that we have a responsibility to discharge this in, in helping one another. So if it's true that we are to be a unified body, learning to look past differences and to communicate grace toward one another in the differences, then we have some other steps to take. And I think Paul takes Romans chapter 15, verse 14, to perhaps in some ways soften the blows of some of the things that he has said. The other night, I had a really bad attitude, and I don't really remember what it was about. But I know that I was being sinful. And I remember whenever I was 18 and Whitney and I started dating, that one of the reasons that I knew God wanted me to date her and then, of course, later marry her is that she was the first girl that I was ever really romantically interested in, however kind of you know, deep romance you can feel between the ages of 14 and 18. And, 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 but she was the first one who ever stood up to me. She was the first one who ever told me what I needed to hear. And by the way, if, if you're between the ages of 14 and 18 a day and you really love somebody, then I'm really happy for you and we can talk about it afterward, okay? And I can tell you about all my mistakes, some of them. Um, but anyway, I'm 18, I find this girl and, and she's really sweet, Whitney's sweet, but Whitney is, is, can be pretty tough sometimes too. You guys don't see that as much, I get to see that. So I'm stubborn, and I'm foolish lots of times. And so I have a wife that's really sweet when, when she needs to be, but she can also stand up to me. So the other night, we were sitting on the couch, and I don't even remember what I was having a bad attitude about. And, and I don't even remember the exact words she said, but she, since, she essentially said to me, you're being really sinful. And she doesn't usually talk to me that bluntly, but she was totally right. And, and then like five minutes later, I said something else that was sinful, and then she reminded me once again that I was being sinful. And then I think I went to eat a, a bad snack, which don't usually exist in our home, but for some reason there were some there. And I think she reminded me once again that I was doing something wrong. And I was tired of being told what to do. So if, if you're between the ages of 14 and 18, now you can sympathize with me, right? Because you're tired a lot of times of your mom and dad telling you what to do all the time. So I, I was feeling like that. And, but I, of course, she was right. And finally, I looked at her and it was late and I said, I can't take any more tonight. This is enough. And, and so I think in some ways, maybe Paul knows that. So he's taken chapters 1 through 8, essentially, to really ground people in the love of Christ. But in chapters 9 through 15 now, Paul's been giving them a lot of instruction. And he's been really going after their sin. And as a Christian, we know we need that. We, we know we need that sin exposed. But it's not very fun. I remember back in seminary, 
Seminary is the strangest place in the world. I don't recommend it for most people. It's a really odd place. And it doesn't matter which one you go to. They're all kind of the same. So you go in and you know a little bit because you've been learning for a while. And then you enter seminary and, and for like between two and sometimes six years, you're just there just having your, hell, your, your head filled with stuff. Um, and, and so, you know, you're learning all this stuff, all these big words, and you're learning other languages, and, and you think you know everything after about a year. And, and so it creates this strange environment of, like, these little holy warriors running around, armed with all this truth that they think that they've mastered. And I remember back, back in those days, we'd get together occasionally like the coffee shop, and we would study or whatever, and... and um, you know, we're total nerds. We're just like sitting at a table and we've got like Greek flashcards. Like we're quizzing each other, you know, and stuff. It's total, totally like theological nerdiness. And, and every once in a while we'd get into like a deeper discussion about life, you know. We were getting married, most of us by that point and stuff like that. And, and I remember guys would say things like this. They'd say, you know what? I was, I was at our church yesterday and my pastor preached a sermon and he stepped all over my toes, man, and I loved it. And I used, to, I used to feel really bad because I'd walk around, away from my nerdy sessions and I would think, I don't feel like that. I don't like to have my sin exposed. Now, I know what they meant by it. What they meant was, I, I'm learning to enjoy God more. My sin is being stripped away. I'm being weaned of worldliness and it's being replaced with godliness. But, but even still, I don't, I don't like to have my sin exposed. I like the result of it. Most of us do. We, we like the weaning process, but we don't like how it feels in the midst of it. And I think maybe Paul knew that as he wrote this letter. He had been pretty direct with them in several senses. So now in Romans chapter 15, verse 14, he kind of pulls back a little bit and he affirms them. This reminds us way back in chapter 1 of the affirmations he gave them there. Back in Romans chapter 1, Paul was essentially saying to them, I've heard about your faith and, and your faith, the the, the kind of faith you have is unusual. In fact, people all over the region are speaking of your faith. You're unique. So he gained an audience way back in chapter 1 by commending them and affirming them. And now in Romans chapter 15, verse 14, he does it again. Here's what he says. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. That's really interesting. So he's been giving them all kinds of instruction. He's been going after where they're not good. He's been going after where they lack knowledge, and he's been instructing them. But now he says to them, in a way that almost seems contradictory, but you are full of goodness, and you're being filled with knowledge, and therefore, you're able to instruct one another. Why does he do that? When I was in seminary, we lived in the South. We were there for about 10 years. So that was undergrad and graduate school and a little bit after that. And I like the South in a lot of ways. I like the weather. Um, I like the food. It's one of the reasons I got fat down there. Lots of fried chicken and sweet tea. And, and so I like the South in lots of ways. But one of the things I really struggle with in the South is no one ever tells you the truth down there. So whenever you're, whenever you're in the South, everybody always puts their best foot forward. And they will never tell you the truth to your face. Now, when you walk away, they'll gossip about you. 
But in the South, everything is, is sort of pretentious. Everybody has a little bit of a facade. Now, I'm, I'm using broad brush strokes here, of course. But I, I never quite felt like I fit in down there. I don't think I could fit in the Northeast very well because they're way too blunt for me. I like the Midwest. The Midwest, people are basically honest and they're basically nice. But we look at this verse and we think, is, is Paul like a, an American Southerner? Is he like kind of being fake with them so that he can you know, let them off the hook for a minute? I don't think so. He had gotten a good report from them. In fact, uh, Aquila and Priscilla, which he mentions again in chapter 16, we'll get there eventually, which had been near and dear to Paul, had a church in their house in Rome. And so they knew this church assembly really well, and they had given Paul good information on what these people were like. So even though Paul had never been there, was not directly responsible for planting this church, he knew many of them by name. And I think he genuinely felt good about them. He knew these things were true. He knew they were full of goodness. He knew that they knew a lot of stuff. And he knew they were able to minister to one another. And I don't think this contradicts what he's already been saying. So I think there's a tension here, and we all feel this, between who we already are and what we need to become. So we are a community of grace. We are rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's chapters 1 through 8 of Romans. We have been transformed, and we should be encouraged by that, and yet we are to constantly be transforming. So, by God's grace, we are not who we used to be, but we are not yet who we will be. In this section, Paul begins to talk to them about what he's getting ready to do. Paul is getting ready to take up a collection of money from various Gentile churches around the Mediterranean base, and he's going to go back to Jerusalem and take that money back to them. The Jerusalem church was, was basically mostly made up of relatively poor people. The Gentile churches were a little better off, and Paul would take money from those Gentile churches and take them back to the home base in Jerusalem and bless them with monetary gifts. But after that, Paul intended to come to Rome and make Rome kind of his, his launching point to go into Spain. We tend to think that the gospel of Jesus Christ only spread like around Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and that part of the world, but the gospel went all over the place, all over the place as far as Africa and, and even India. I mean, the gospel went all over the place, and Paul wanted to, to get the gospel where it had not yet been spoken. In fact, we'll get into that in the verses to come over the next few weeks. Paul didn't want to just go to where he had been before all the time, although he did do church checkups. He also wanted to go to new places and preach the gospel so that new churches would be started because he wanted the gospel to spread all over the place. But the Roman church was strong. The Roman church would be a good launching point. It wasn't just a geographical sort of strategy. It was also a theological strategy. Paul wanted to be in a place where he had like-minded brothers and sisters. So in many ways, the reason that he wrote this letter was for future plans. He wanted to confirm that, that what he had heard about them was still true. People like Aquila and Priscilla have taught you rightly, hang on to these truths. And don't just hang on to doctrinal truth. Make sure that you're living in light of its implication. And if you will continue in this manner, then we can be joined together in mission. I think there's very important connections now for us to discern between belief, practical holiness, and missional effectiveness. That is to say, Paul wanted to confirm that these people believed the right things and did the right things. And then they could cooperate together in mission. 
It's true for us too. If we have been commanded to take the gospel all over the place, not just in this community, but all over the world, if we're not agreed on what we believe and basically how we should live, well, there, I know there's some flexibility in that, but the big stuff and what we believe and how we live, then how can we ever go do anything together? So we have to be joined together in unity around doctrine and, and basic practices, and then, and not until then, can we actually go do anything missionally effective. So Paul has taken great pains through this letter to, to talk about the gospel and all of its implications so that he could come to them eventually and, and be among like-minded brothers and sisters so then the gospel could go somewhere else. And that's how the gospel spreads. So in this verse, he comes to them and says, having said all these things, that's kind of the idea here, having said all these things, chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 15, verse 13, having established all that, I want you to know that I think well of you. That's Paul's point. We won't take a lot of time on this today, but I want to just park here for a second and say something to you that I say pretty often. And that is, though we need as a community of grace to be able to speak the truth to each other, and we'll talk about that today. We have to learn to encourage each other, even warn each other from time to time. You will always gain a much more ready audience. You will always perk people's ears up, you will always find fertile ground in people's hearts if you are a good affirmer. This is really important for us as parents. Do you ever find yourself, maybe especially when your kids are younger, just saying the same things to your kids over and over and over and over? So that sometimes by like mid-afternoon, you know, like you're thinking to yourself, I, I've just said the same thing to my children like 20 times today. And and I'm starting to get angry and frustrated. I'm not even enjoying my kids. I'm just trying to mold their behavior. We're all like that at one point or another. And, and you know, when your kids are little, especially, you're just trying to get them to, like, stay away from the stove and not fall down the stairs and not hit each other and all these kinds of things. Because that's what we do as parents. We're trying to conform their behavior in a sense. But, of course, as Christians, we know that we're doing much more than that. We're trying to get to their hearts. But the problem a lot of times for us is that we get so caught up in this mode of just correcting behavior and correcting behavior and correcting behavior that we can really squelch any joy they have. We can rip any happiness away from their hearts. In fact, often if we are the people, kind of people that are constantly telling our kids what to do and never affirming, eventually they will learn to conform their behavior to our expectations. But when they're on their own and they're in private, and eventually, when they're out of our presence, out of the home, they're going to do whatever they want. Which is why, as parents, we're not here just to conform behavior in our kids. We're here to get to their hearts. I think it's a perfect analogy for us. If you really want to reach your children's hearts, learn to be good affirmers. And this is really, really critical as your children get older. And those of you who are older, like you're not kids anymore, but you're not maybe like college yet, so you're kind of in that middle section. You know this, right? It's hard to hear from your parents what to do all the time. It's hard to hear what you do wrong all the time. And if you're being honest with yourselves, you know, guys, in that category, guys and girls in that category, you know, you guys do a lot of things that aren't that smart and not that good. But, you know, there's a lot of good about you too, and sometimes you feel like mom and dad don't see that. So moms and dads, as a metaphor here, and even when your kids are little, learn to be good affirmers. You see a sign of grace in your kid, tell them. If you see something commendable that your child does, tell them. 
It has been said that for every one correction that you give your child, there should be 10 affirmations. I wonder if we practice that, if maybe we wouldn't lose our kids' hearts. It's hard, parents. Kids, it's hard for your parents to do this. Be patient with us. Maybe every once in a while you can appeal to us. If you feel like we're really tough on you, then maybe you need to take us aside and say, hey, Dad, I want to go buy you a Coke or a Mom or whatever. And, of course, they'll pay for it because that's the way it works because you don't have any money. And then say, I want to, I want to talk to you about something. You know, I really, I really want to serve God. I really want to do what you and Mom want, but I feel like you, you never notice the good. And then as parents, listen. I think this is true in the church community too. Every once in a while, I'll get a text from somebody or a phone call from somebody, and they say, hey, let's get together and talk. And, and I don't want to. And so I'm always doing a lot of investigation, like, well, why do you want to get together? But when somebody contacts me and, and, and says that, but they're the kind of person that's always communicating grace to me, I want to get together. I want to talk. And then even though I might have to hear something hard from them, I know they're for me. I know they love me. So I'm not going to say a lot more about that today, but just by way of principle, mark that down. Learn to be a good affirmer. I think in one way or another, we all need it. Whether it's through letters or texts or verbal communication, learn to be the kind of people that are constantly affirming. And Paul did it here. He affirmed these people. And you might say, well, you know, I have this perfect standard of holiness and nobody measures up. (laughs) there's your starting problem, right? You have an inflated view of self. I mean, who measured up to Paul? These people were, you know, pretty strong, apparently. They were filled with goodness and knew a lot of stuff, but they didn't measure up to Paul. Like, if they were like, like the common foot soldiers in the army, he was like Delta Force. And yet, he still affirmed them. And I think a lot of times the reason that we don't affirm people around us is because we have an inflated view of self and nobody ever measures up to our expectations. Be really careful with that. Let's move on. A few thoughts for today as we move forward that I want to say to you that just to help you maybe get your mind wrapped around this verse and have it be really meaningful for you. The Spirit is producing fruit in us. That's the first thing I want to see here at the beginning of verse 14. The Spirit is producing fruit in us. I think that's what Paul's saying at the beginning of verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge. Where does this come from? This comes from the Spirit. So he's gone after them in many ways. He's addressed what they believe, he's addressed their behavior. Paul says to them essentially throughout this letter not everything is perfect. Be careful. Address the things that are lacking. But now he comes to verse 14 and he affirms them. And he says to them, these things are evident in you. You are filled with goodness. You are being filled with knowledge. As one quite uh, well-known expert on this book has said, he's not flattering them, but he's being really courteous. He's encouraging them. Notice that he calls them brothers here. He doesn't elevate himself above them. He says, we're together in this. He speaks to them with familial terms. He'd heard about them, as we said a bit ago, and probably in an in-depth manner. And now because of his knowledge, he goes and speaks to them and, and affirms them in the good. 
This idea of goodness is the idea of being upright in conduct, but can also mean things like kindness and generosity toward others. Back in Romans chapter 1, we've already said that Paul was affirming them for the good that was known about them, and now he does it again. This concept of goodness we find in other portions of Paul's writings. This is not a common term. In fact, this term for goodness shows up nowhere in ancient Greek outside of the Bible itself. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, Paul says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. It's the same term that we find in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. This is not the normal term for goodness in the Bible, but it is one that Paul uses occasionally. The same word for goodness in Romans chapter 15, verse 14, is the one you see here in front of you on the screen in Galatians chapter 5. Well, who is the one who produces this kind of goodness? It's the Spirit. So it's moral uprightness, but it's also the idea of graciousness, kindness, generosity. Where does this come from? It comes from the Spirit. So in Romans chapter 15, verse 14, Paul is saying, there's a lot of good in you. You are upright, you have integrity, and you are kind, and you are gracious. Not only are they full of goodness, but they're also being filled with knowledge. Your translation may not have that progressive verbal sense that they are being filled with all knowledge, but the original language does. So it's, it goes like this, you are, you are full of goodness and you are being filled with knowledge, which is like the rest of us. When the Spirit indwells us, He's making us good and He's teaching us all the time. You're learning all the time, whether it's through sermons or Bible studies or personal devotional time with God, you're, you're growing in knowledge. You're learning stuff you didn't used to know. So if the Spirit lives within you, and if you belong to Christ, the Spirit is within you, that's Romans chapter 8, then there is good in you, and you are being filled with knowledge. How did this happen? Well, in Romans chapter 16, verse 25, Paul says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, then he goes on. Paul's point is, you grow through being exposed to the Word. He's not saying here that they're just savvy, that they know how to kind of navigate life, that they just have common sense. Being filled with knowledge here in Romans chapter 15, verse 14, is, is growing in the Scriptures. It's knowing God's Word. Now, is it possible to be the kind of person that knows a lot of Bible stuff but never changes? That your devotion is actually to, to stuff, to content rather than to God? Is that possible? I think it's possible. I know people like that. I know people that have a lot of theological head knowledge, but when it comes down to it, you don't want to be around them because their character really hasn't changed. They're not kind. They're not generous. But having... Having said that, the truth is if you, if you come to the Word rightly, if you come to the Word as God wants you to, the Word will lead you to God. The Word will not lead you away from God. So here was ha- here's what was happening in the Roman church. They were full of goodness, and progressively as they were being exposed to the Word, they were becoming more good. They affect one another. 
So as we are growing in goodness, we want the Word. And as we go to the Word, the Word makes us more good. See how that works? It's reciprocal. So I was thinking about our church. Paul gave some specific encouragements here to this church. Romans chapter 15, verse 14. These Roman believers were full of goodness, and they are being filled with knowledge. That's pretty encouraging. So how about us? Here's what I see. I count it a privilege, and I know our elders do too, to be in a church where we can preach the Scriptures and not have to worry about it. Now, I know I go too long sometimes, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm aware of that. But, but even still, you sit. Now, I don't know. You might turn me off by like 11. I don't know. But you're getting something, like 1030 to 11. There's something in there. But I know you keep coming. That may say something. But it's not because of the specific elders here. It's because of God's Word. You love God's Word. You're committed to the Scriptures. Do you know how encouraging that is for us as elders? We get together twice a month for two hours, so we spend at least four hours a month talking about the church, praying for it, planning, um, thinking about you guys and how to help you best. And, and often what we do is we go through the list of people, and we'll talk about you know, families and how they're doing and how can we help them grow and what are our concerns and how can we pray for them. But usually, though, there's a couple of families here and there that really need our attention and prayers for a period. By and large, we have a church that is really growing and committed to God's Word. That's so encouraging for us. It's encouraging to be able to come on a Sunday like this and, and preach God's Word to you. I mean, we're covering one verse today, and most of you want to. We have a high percentage of people that come to small groups to hear God's Word again. We have people come into women's studies and men's studies and a lot of people in discipleship relationships because you want to know God and you want to do it by knowing His Word. We, we're so thankful for that. Now, the Spirit's producing that, so He gets the credit, but I want you to be encouraged that we see that and we're thankful for that, that you love God's Word. Not only that, we're seeing progressively a commitment to each other that you love each other, that you want to be with each other. I think one of the reasons that we have high involvement in small groups is not just because you want to fill your head with a lot of biblical knowledge, you want to be together. I love that. I love seeing my small group become a family within a family. I, I, I just love seeing that. I love seeing you listen to each other. I love seeing you sacrifice for one another. I love, I love to see you encourage one another, and, and I see this in you consistently. And, and this is a sign that the Spirit is at work here. Now, are we perfect at this? No. Could our relationships be better and deeper and more committed? Yes. Are there people among you that are lonely today and don't feel like they have friends? The answer to that is yes. That's the way it works. And it's really hard when somebody sees everybody else having a lot of fun together and, and they feel left out, which means that we have to keep growing in this, and you have to pay attention. Not only do we see you as elders being committed to the Scriptures and committed to one another, we love to see you committed, being committed to sharing. Um, we're raising this money right now for this, this uh, motorcycle for the orphanage in Kenya. We raised a lot of money last year to buy the vehicle for the um, Chinese national that's sharing the gospel in China. I've seen you again and again give to projects and to people who had needs to pay their mortgages and all kinds of other things. We see you sharing your resources. 
And like a commitment to the Scriptures needs to grow, and like a commitment to one another needs to grow, and a commitment to sharing needs to grow. Most of us in one way or another are still pretty selfish. We like to hold on to our stuff. But by and large, we see you being committed to sharing your stuff, and we love to see that. So like Paul encouraged the church today, and he did it, I think, with genuineness. I say to you with genuineness today on behalf of the elders, we see your commitment to the Scriptures and to each other and to sharing your stuff and and to a whole lot of other things. We see this and we're grateful. And I want you to be encouraged by that. And we're not just saying that today. We mean it. So the Spirit is producing fruit in you. Be encouraged by that. So Paul says to this church here, the Spirit is producing fruit in them. But there's a purpose for that. The purpose is he wants to continue to use them to help others so that they will grow too. So the Spirit is producing fruit in us so that he might use us to do the same in others. So that as you grow, others grow. As you are being filled with goodness and knowledge, then therefore that overflows to other people so the same thing will happen to them and then to others and others and round and round we go. This is how a church grows. So you are full of goodness, being filled with all knowledge. This means that progressively you're learning all the Scriptures. And because of this, the latter portion of verse 14, you are able to instruct one another. Now, he doesn't tell them to instruct one another, but it's implicit. So you're filled with goodness, you're being filled with knowledge, and now implicitly you have the responsibility to let that overflow in instructing one another. I very rarely use Greek words in front of you because I don't think you remember them and I don't think you care. And frankly, I think it's sometimes whenever you overdo that, it discourages people thinking, hey, if I don't know Greek, I can't learn the Bible. But I'm going to do it today because I think it's helpful. There's, there's a word here, and you find it in this uh, word, able to instruct. Um, the word here, the Greek word, is the word nutheteo. And the only reason I'm telling you that today is there's a counseling movement within the evangelical church called the nuthetic counseling movement. Raise your hands truly. Has anybody ever heard of this, the Nuthetic Counseling Movement? The Nuthetic Counseling Movement comes out of this verse. This was, in many ways, the, the catalyst for the biblical counseling movement. So when you hear the, if you ever hear of the Nuthetic Counseling Movement, it just means the biblical counseling movement. And in many ways, this verse, Romans chapter 15, verse 14, was the catalyst for that. So what happened after Freud came on this scene in the latter part of the 19th century is that as the field of psychology grew and became more and more secular, that the church began to abandon her ability to counsel over to secular psychologists. But by the time you get to the 60s and early 70s, you have evangelical leaders saying, wait a minute, a lot of these psychological ideas don't jive with Scripture. Now, not all of it's bad, of course, but if you ever read Freud, a lot of it's bad. So it's kind of a mixed bag. So here you have these evangelical leaders saying, wait a minute, we have people who need to grow in sanctification, they need to grow in Christ, and yet whenever they're having problems, we're just sending them to secular counselors. That's not a good idea. And so a verse like Romans chapter 15 verse 14 pops up, and and people look at that and say, wait a minute, we have the ability to help each other. Now, I want to give a couple caveats here. I'm not saying that there's never a reason to go to a secular counselor. I'm not saying that they have nothing good to say. 
I'm merely saying that whenever there's problems in living, we shouldn't just punt as the church. When somebody comes to you and they've got a hard problem, don't just say, well, I don't know what to do with that. Go find somebody else with some letters next to their name. They might need them, but they probably need you too. And if you are filled with goodness and you're being filled with all knowledge, you have something to say. Now, you may not have everything that this person needs. They may need somebody else too. But they may well need you as well. And may they need you mostly. So this word here, instruct, carries with the idea of warning, of teaching, of admonishing, of encouraging. We'll look at some verses in just a moment where Paul uses this word again, but I want you just to think for a minute that what you're being filled with is not just for you. You've been given a gift so that you may impart it to somebody else. We're to do this in our families. Dads, set the tone for this. You lead your wives and you lead your children, and this spills over to your wives. We do this in the church. We have the responsibility to take the gift that we've been given to help each other. How does this show up? Well, it shows up in things like discipleship. That may freak you out, but if you sit in a church like ours today and you have a Bible that you can actually read, and if I were to give you five or six theological words and you could give a basic definition to them, you know more than most Christians globally today. It's true. Which means that if you've been a Christian for a while and you know some basic doctrine and your life has a basic trajectory toward godliness, you can help somebody else grow. You certainly should be able to do it with your wife and your kids if you're a father and a dad. You certainly should be able to do it with your children if you're a mom. But if there's another adult that comes along and they've got some struggles, you probably can help them. You don't just have to send them to an elder. In fact, though the elders here do a lot of discipleship, we don't want to do most of it because we want you to help do it. There's nothing more thrilling than to be able to sit down with a person on a basically regular basis and see them grasp the truth of Scriptures and have the Spirit apply that to their hearts and them change and then take those gifts then and use it with somebody else. That's what I tell everybody whenever they come and we start discipleship. We're done when you're ready to go do this with somebody else. And it's so encouraging to see that process happen. So we have responsibility in discipleship to be doing this. And in one way or another, all of us need to be involved in discipleship, whether you're being discipled or doing discipleship. I think we see this in other ways here in our church. We see this on the collective impact that we have on our children. I'll speak personally. As my boys are getting older, what I want from a couple of you men is to be my, my kids' buddies. I, I want them to be able to come to you and hear the same things they're hearing from me. But you know what? You might say it in a way that connects them in a way that I don't. And I've got to be okay with that. I'd love for every other week or whatever for one of you guys to take my sons out for a Coke and, and just talk to them and hang out with them and say the same things I am and to help each other. We can have a collective impact on our children. Have you seen my kids doing something? Tell them. And I've told them to listen to you. And if they don't, they'll be in trouble. But this is what we do together. We, we help each other. And our children are our most precious resource. And we have a collective impact on them. This happens with our elder team. 
I'm pretty headstrong a lot of times. I think I can do everything on my own, which is one of the reasons we have a plurality of elders here. Not only, of course, is it biblical, but I desperately need it. And I have guys that sit there around the table with me twice a month, and they tell me what they think. I need that desperately. We're sharpening each other. Each of us has our strengths and our weaknesses, but a plurality of elders creates safety in a church so that one guy isn't running the show and leading it astray. And I think sometimes just very organically in your friendships, it it may not be called discipleship, it may not be this formal kind of thing, but just in your friendships, you should be exhorting one another. You should have meaningful, substantive conversations. So, Paul uses this word elsewhere. I told you I'd show you a few verses. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and wherever this word shows up, it'll show up in uh, italics and, un- and being underlined in these verses in front of you. It's the same word that we find here in Romans chapter 15, verse 14, that we're able to instruct one another. Well, where else does Paul use it? 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. So he's admonishing them. He's nuthateoing them, if you will. He's warning them, instructing them to follow Christ. Colossians chapter 1. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Twice there in that section, Paul uses that word. But I think there's something going on here, and I want you to see the connection. In John chapter 1, here's what John says about Jesus. The Word, notice it's capitalized, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Notice what Jesus is like. He's full of grace and truth. That's what we see here in Romans chapter 15, verse 14. These people were full of goodness, which can also be kindness or grace, and were being filled with all knowledge. For what purpose? To impart it to other people. What was Jesus like? He was full of grace, goodness, and truth, and he came to give a gift to his people. What should we be like as his people? We should be full of grace and truth and use our gifts to help other people. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says something pretty similar here in Romans chapter 4. In the first eight verses of of Ephesians chapter 4, Paul makes it clear that Christ has ascended back to heaven and left gifts with the church. So though he is gone now, his physical presence is not with us, he has left us gifts. Verse 9. 
And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? That means his incarnation. He took on flesh. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Christ left gifts. Some of those gifts are leaders. And as the leaders discharge their gifts, the church grows. And then we grow together into the unity of faith. But notice verse 15, they are to speak the truth in love. That's John chapter 1. Jesus was full of grace and truth. That's Romans 15, 14. We are filled with goodness and knowledge and are therefore responsible to discharge this gift and to use it for others' good. That's Paul's point here in Romans chapter 15, verse 14. You have all these gifts within you. You are full of grace and full of truth. Now use them for each other. So if John and Paul, the two writers that most gave shape to our New Testament, are concerned about this concept, so must we be. So the Spirit is producing fruit in us so that He might use us to do the same in others. Let me give you an illustration of this. Um, most of you know Gaki and Abby Masunga. They were part of our church for quite a while and now live in Cincinnati. Their parents are the ones that we were with when we were in Kenya recently. The Masunga girls found our church while they were finishing college or had just started into their careers and came here and loved the assembly. They, they loved our doctrine and our practice and all that kind of stuff. They were, they were really part of our church here. Through that, we got to know their parents, and our hearts were really knit together with their parents because we were in agreement on doctrine and practice. So that led to our trip this past January and February to Kenya. While we were there as a team, we had the opportunity to share truth. We were doing a lot of training with pastors and their wives and various other people. Through that, I met a man named Michael. His name is Michael Otieno, if you care, but he is a pastor in Nairobi. Michael and I became friends, and Michael had a parishioner, a guy in his church named Elisha, which was coming, he, he was coming to the States to do some study for about a month and then go back to Kenya. Elisha just happened to be coming to Denver, which is where my brother has planted a church, very similar to our church. Elisha got hooked up with my brother through that relationship. Elisha has recently returned to Kenya. And if anything is true about Kenyans, they love Facebook. Americans are growing weary of Facebook, which I'm frankly glad for, but Kenyans love it. And so Michael, Pastor Michael, posts all the time. It's, it's like, you know, it could be something really deep, like something he saw in the scriptures, or it could be what he had for lunch, but, you know, he tells you. And I noticed after Elisha got back from Denver to Kenya that my friend Michael is now friends with my brother in, in Denver, and he was commending my brother for what his parishioner, Elisha, learned while he was in, in Colorado. And now, he said, we're going to start implementing some of the things that Elisha learned while in Colorado for a month here in our church. 
And now he's invited my brother to come from Colorado to Kenya to teach in his church. My brother is also adopting he and his wife from Uganda. And relationships are now being formed there to be able to spread the gospel there. We are, by God's grace, adopting from Ethiopia. And Joseph Masunga is giving us opportunities to go into Ethiopia while we're there trying to get our kids and minister there. And I say all this to say to make this point. All you've got to do is just be out there and give your life to people. And it's amazing how it begins to spread across the world. And I don't say all these things to, to promote any particular person. That's not my point, and I hope you know that. My point is that if there's good in you, and if you are filled with the Spirit, there's got to be good there because that's his job. If he's there, there is goodness and there is knowledge, and you have the responsibility to discharge that to other people to instruct one another. You're able to do it. Do it. And as you do it, you will be a blessing to way more people than you will ever imagine. And God will use that with ripple effects to bless the world. This happens on a much smaller level, too. You may think, how's my influence ever going to reach Africa? Maybe not. But it happens in small ways. I have a little clone, and his name is Jack. He's eight, and he's just like me in so many ways. Thankfully, I see some good there, but all of his faults come from his father in many ways, too. My son um, is learning to be sarcastic. He's pretty smart, and he's pretty funny, and he thinks that if he's sarcastic, people will like him, which is the rub of sarcasm. I remember as a teenager, I was incredibly sarcastic, and I did it to make people like me because I was very insecure. Most people who are very sarcastic, you think they're kind of tough and really secure. Most sarcastic people are the most insecure people you will ever meet. I remember sitting at the dinner table almost every night, and my dad would look at me relatively firmly, and he would say, you know, people will be turned off by your sarcasm, but they will be drawn to your kindness. And as a teenager, you're like, I don't care about being kind. I just want to be cool. But as I became older, I realized that, you know, my sarcasm turned people off. But if you smile at people, they respond. It's, it's amazing. If you, I promise you, if you go to the mall today and you, and you walk through Polaris and, and you just make sure to intentionally smile at every person that passes by you, most of them will be caught off guard and they'll smile back at you because they're lonely and they're sad. And I say that to Jack all the time, and this is my point in my little clone. And I say this to make the point. Your, your effect may not immediately reach across the globe. Using your gifts to bless other people, you may not hear about it on Facebook about how it's impacting Kenya or whatever else. Maybe not. But my father's faithful influence over dinner because he saw my sin is paying dividends in his grandson. That may seem small, but it's not. It's a big deal. My dad was full of goodness. He was full of knowledge, and he uses gifts for my good, and now I can do that for my kids. And So whether it's big stuff or small stuff, the good is in you. The knowledge is growing in you. Use your gifts to bless other people. So, as we close, how should we apply this? Here's three basic thoughts. First, our homes must be permeated with grace and truth. I see that very clearly in Romans 15, 14. Grace and truth. Jesus was like that, John chapter 1. Paul wanted the church to be like that, Ephesians chapter 4. He also wanted this Roman church to be like this, Romans chapter 15. And we're to be like this. So first, your homes must be permeated with grace and truth. We talked earlier about being good affirmers, but also being willing to instruct your kids. You've got to be both. If your home isn't full of grace, your kids will be turned off by the truth. 
But if there's no truth, your kindness is not really grace because grace leads to transformation. Kindness without truth is just sappiness. It's sentimentality, and it doesn't help anybody. So dads, be the pace setters. Make sure that you're growing in grace and truth. How do you do that? Go get exposed to your Savior. John chapter 1, be like Jesus. Go learn what he was like. And then by the Spirit's help, model that to your wife and to your children. Dads, do you see deficiencies in your children? You know whose fault it probably is? It's probably yours. Husbands, do you see deficiencies in your wives? Are they not all that they probably should be? You know why? It's probably your fault. So own it and change. Wives, moms, this doesn't let you off the hook, of course. But make sure that our homes are like this. They should be unique. They shouldn't be like everybody else. Secondly, our times of fellowship and worship should be purposeful and not wasted on trivial things. Paul's saying you have these gifts within you and use them to bless each other. That means that when you have opportunities to do it, do it. Whether it's after our worship time together today or maybe tonight at our picnic time when you gather together, this would be a great time to practice it. It's hard to get beyond the mundane. Just like you don't smile at people in the mall because you're so conditioned to go get your stuff done. Same reason you don't ever get to anything meaningful in your conversations. Because you're conditioned to talk about things that don't matter. Some of that's because you're embarrassed. You don't know how to bring you know, serious stuff up. Some of it's because you don't want people asking you hard questions because you like to hide. But our times of fellowship and worship should be purposeful and not wasted on trivial things. This, this life is short, and what we do with these lives matter. So use your gifts to bless people. And thirdly and lastly, we should all be doing our part to see that our church family is growing in worship of our Lord. We should all be doing our part to see that our church family is growing in worship of our Lord. That's Ephesians chapter 4. Be a good cross-reference for you to meditate upon as we walk away from our time together today. Christ has left gifts to bless the church so that it will grow in unity and faith and worship. <clears throat> That's Romans 15, 14. That's the essence. Paul encourages them with what he knows to be true about them. You're full of goodness. You're being filled with all knowledge. And now you have the responsibility implicitly, he says in this verse, to instruct one another, sometimes to warn and admonish, sometimes just to encourage. But all of you play a part. That's why Paul uses the metaphor of the body back in Ephesians chapter 4. You may say, well, you know, I'm an insignificant part. But Paul doesn't let you get away with that. You may think you're insignificant, but you're not. You know what's happening behind these doors today? You know, we, we don't just release the kids. And I know a lot of them are gone today. Usually whenever we release the kids on a Sunday, it's like a, it's like a horde of people leaving, right? I mean, our church is so young. I mean, most of them are, a lot of them are back there today. You think, you think that doesn't matter? Is that just controlled babysitting with a craft? What's going on back there today matters. Now, that can't replace what you're doing at home because we only get them for like an hour a week. But it supplements it. Your kids are being challenged to know and love Jesus Christ back there. And I'm thankful for the teachers and aides that go back there and use their gifts. And if you'd like to join in that, we still need some more help back there. I, I encourage you to jump in. They're using their gifts to see that this church family is growing, even the smallest ones. 
And that's just an example. It's happening in a lot of other ways as well, but are you playing your part? Are you on the sidelines? Though I don't want you to be discouraged today because I find this verse to be very encouraging, I do want to challenge you to say, you know, maybe, maybe you need to think about this and say, I've got some changing to do. Yes, the gifts are in me, but I'm being selfish. Maybe I'm scared. Maybe I don't know how. If you're selfish, repent and go engage. If you're scared, ask for courage. If you don't know how to start, come find somebody like me or somebody else who can help you get started. But there's gifts in you, and your church family needs you. There's a whole lot more we could say. And you may think, how do we spend all that time on one verse? But we could. It's, it's just rich and dense with truth. So two thoughts today, and we'll close with this. Like any good gospel-centered teaching, we should be encouraged by the love of God. And you find that at the beginning of Romans chapter 15, verse 14. Because of the gospel, these things are true in you. Because of the gospel, you are being changed. You are being transformed. Be encouraged. But also be challenged that all of us have transforming to do, and we each play an important role in that transformation process. So thanks be to God for how he's changed us. And may he continue to be faithful to work through us to continue to change us for his glory and for our mutual joy.